This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Talib Vizram, and you're listening to Fast Break, a look at some of the most innovative ideas that bring about social change. This week, we'll hear from two journalists who took their work experiences and decided to make some pretty dramatic changes. This is your Fast Break. As a broadcast journalist on Nightline and Good Morning America, Dan Harris was at the peak of his career. But after 9-11, he began reporting in war zones, and it started to take a toll on him. In 2004, he had a panic attack on live television. Here to tell us what happened afterwards and how it led to a meditation venture is the man himself. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Welcome. Nice to meet you. Talib, that means student, right? That's right. Yeah. Normally, I, I don't get that, so I appreciate you uh, knowing that. <laughs> I uh, spent a lot of time uh, overseas as a reporter. That's right. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit. We're, we're super excited to have you here. You know, Dan, I wonder if we could start with going right back to 2004 and your panic attack, essentially, that you had on, on live TV. Um, you know, can you maybe share with us some of the things that might have been going on in your life at the time that, that might have contributed to that episode? Well, we, are, we, <laughs> we already landed there in some ways because it was the time overseas that sort of created some of these problems. I, I'm specifically referring to after 9-11, back when I was young and new at ABC News, which is my still my employer. And I volunteered to go overseas to cover whatever was going to happen after 9-11, and I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan with the Taliban, and Pakistan and Israel and the West Bank, Gaza. I was in Iraq a lot, months and months and months. And when I came home after a really long stint in Iraq in the summer of 2003, I got depressed, didn't know I was depressed, and started to self-medicate with recreational drugs, including cocaine. I, w I wasn't doing that much of it, but, you know, enough so that after I had the panic attack on, you can see it if you just Google panic attack on television, it's the first yeah. result, which is awesome for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that morning on Good Morning America, I was not high. I hadn't did, done drugs the night before, but I was just kind of a few seconds into doing my thing and I just lost the ability to breathe, which is inconvenient if you're trying to anchor the news. And yeah. it, it was embarrassing and scary. And afterwards, I went to see a shrink and he pointed out that even though my drug career was reasonably unspectacular, it was enough to artificially raise the level of adrenaline in my brain and make me make it more likely for me to freak out. Mm. Do you still kind of remember that episode clearly? Do you remember kind of vividly what was going through your mind and, and how you felt in that moment? Yeah, I do. So I was, my job that morning, I was filling in as what's called the news reader. I had done that many times. I wasn't particularly nervous that morning. I don't know what triggered it in particular, but I was two or three stories in and I just noticed that I my heart was racing, my palms were sweating, my mouth was drying up, my lungs were seizing up. Wow. And I just, I was really having trouble breathing. And so as the body reacted that way, my mind reacted with like this, you know, hissing, uh, you're on live television, you're fucking this up, you're, you're, this is really embarrassing. And then the more the mind freaks out, the more the body freaks out. And it's a vicious cycle. It's just anxiety on steroids, really. It's a panic attack. Well, so, so let's talk about the kind of aftermath then, you know, what, what kind of happened shortly after that? And, 
what kind of led to meditation? So I actually, after that panic attack, a doctor who actually didn't ask about the drugs, so didn't catch that, but prescribed me some sort of anti-anxiety meditation, meditation, medication, (laughs) Freudian slip of therapy. And then a year or so later, I had another much more mild panic attack, at which point I met Dr. Brotman, who really changed my life. He did ask whether I did drugs. I told him, yes. He said, you're an idiot. Here's why. And uh, he didn't actually say that, but something to that. He gave me a look that, that definitely communicated that sentiment. So after I met Brotman, I quit doing drugs. And since that's not easy, I agreed to go see him once or twice a week indefinitely. And I did that for you know probably a decade. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm not doing drugs and I'm in therapy. And this kind of launches me into a strange, weird, windy, circuitous adventure that takes me through in my job, mega churches and Mormon temples. And I'm basically on this kind of weird spiritual quest, which is strange for me because I grew up in the People's Republic of Massachusetts. Both my parents are atheists, scientists. And uh, as I often joke, I had a bar mitzvah, but only for the money. And (laughs) so I wasn't really interested in this stuff, but I kind of ended up searching around and ended up looking around a lot in the self-help world. And that ultimately landed me on meditation, which I was really skeptical about. I had no interest in meditation, but I, I was able to see some of the science that strongly suggests that meditation can confer a whole long list of tantalizing health benefits. Right. So let's talk about the 10% Happier app. You know, there are maybe a dozen meditation apps out there on the market right now, Um, you know, Headspace, Calm, uh, a a few others. What makes 10% Happier stand out? This is going to be an example of me being a bad businessman because it's a great industry filled with really well-intentioned people in Headspace, Calm, Waking Up, Insight Timer. There are a lot of really good apps out there. I'm obviously partial to the 10% Happier meditation app, but, you know, you should take that with a grain of salt because... I have some skin in the game here, but I think there are some key things that really do make us different. One is tone and attitude. We really do not present this as a panacea. We do not present it in a, in the traditional ways with sort of religious lingo or you're not going to find soft jungle noises and, you know, rain pitter-pattering on tin roofs and stacked <laughs> rocks and Zen streams. And like we are pretty anti-cliche. Another thing that we do is, because my history is as a TV news reporter, we do a lot of video, a lot of video. So really this format that we've, I think, pioneered, I think would be safe to say, is when you use the app, you can use straight up audio meditations if you want, but most of our users, and in particular the most engaged users, do these little courses that we design where you get one, two, three minute long video that explains to you in an engaging way what you're doing in the practice, how to do it, how to apply it to key areas of your life. And then it slides directly into a guided audio meditation. So that format we find we've had an enormous amount of success with, and it's really fun. It's a kind of storytelling. And I think we have put together the finest, smartest, and most diverse crew of meditation teachers that we work with, you know, a small group of carefully curated meditation teachers who are, you know, really, really heavily vetted. So you can be confident that you're getting primo instructions. So for people who are completely new to meditation, coming from someone like you who was completely new to meditation, uh, what might they expect if they sign up? You know, is meditation 
as the kind of movies portray it, kind of sitting cross-legged and, and doing arms? Or, or is, is there more to it? <laughs> That's part of why we really try to get away from the stereotypical presentation. Because it, it you, you could do it that way, and that, that's cool. Uh, and I actually have no beef with that. But it's it, when you present it that way, it becomes unapproachable to a lot of people for a bunch of reasons. But one really important reason is if you look at the traditional imagery around meditation, it makes it seem like in order to meditate correctly, you need to be in some blissful state. You need to be floating off into the cosmos. And that has led to this really pernicious misconception that in order to meditate, you need to clear your mind. And clearing your mind is impossible unless you're enlightened or you've died. And so the whole game in meditation is just to usually beginning meditation, we pick one thing like the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. Mm. For some people, the breath can be anxiety provoking. It's a loaded proposition right now because of both COVID and BLM. But so if, if the breath is an anxiogenic for you, you can just focus on the feeling of your full body sitting. Mm. So you just pick one sensation, usually a physical sensation, and just commit to it for a couple of minutes. And then the key is every time you get distracted, you start again and again and again. And a lot of people, especially beginners, and this is what we spend a lot of time doing for the beginner users, is pointing out that you may be tempted when you notice how distractible you are to tell yourself a story that you're a failed meditator. But in fact, the moment of waking up to the wildness of your own mind is proof that you're meditating correctly. Because the goal here is to see how chaotic your inner landscape is so that it doesn't own you. Visibility is kryptonite for the chaos. And that's mindfulness or self-awareness that we're training. Mm. You know, you, you mentioned COVID and, and BLM. Uh, you know, if there's any year to get into meditation, perhaps 2020 is the year. You know, what's your advice to people dealing with an extraordinary amount of stress these days? First of all, do not beat yourself up if you're feeling anxious. You're not malfunctioning if you're feeling anxious. The second thing is that there are ways to deal with it. Meditation is one of them. I think one of the key benefits of meditation is, again, you you have some the term of art is metacognition. So you are thinking and knowing you are thinking. This repeated collision with the voice in your head, that's what we're doing in meditation, gives you this metacognition. So you start worrying, and then on the 18th run-through of some horrible scenario that you're envisioning, you might wake up and say, you know, is this useful? Probably not. And then you can focus your energy elsewhere. But there are other ways to manage anxiety. And I, I'm sad to report that many of them are going to be annoyingly obvious, but most of them are things that we don't do or don't do reliably. But Getting enough sleep. Sleep is like the apex predator of healthy habits. Exercise, you know, and if you're not able-bodied, just movement of some sort. Eating well, but without being compulsive about it because cookies are delicious. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> eating reasonably well, having a sort of gentle nutrition nature. And then I would say the most overlooked antidepressant, anti-anxiety is social connection. You know, I have a podcast called 10% Happier, and I spent a lot of time interviewing experts, researchers who are, you know, looking at human flourishing, uh, human psychology, and time and again, I'm face-to-face, -face, either digitally or physically, with these researchers in there, like, it all comes down to social connection. And so I would just emphasize that really strongly for people who are not feeling their best right now. Well, you, you mentioned uh, the, the podcast, uh, getting a bit meta now, uh, you know, talking about a podcast on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> and ABC has produced that podcast with you. Is that right? What's, what's that 
partnership been like? I, I don't know why, but ABC News has been unbelievably supportive of my shenanigans. Such a robust amount of support. And then afterwards, when the book, to my incredible surprise, became successful, they were supportive of me starting a podcast and supportive of me starting an outside company to produce this app. Yeah. Every step of the way, and they continue to be to this day. So that that working experience, from my perspective, has been amazing. Uh, yeah, how has the podcast benefited the overall project? Well, we kind of stumbled on nothing I've done has been deliberate or smart. I wrote the book. I, I didn't think anything would come of it. I thought it would be mildly embarrassing, and I'd go back to my life as a TV news journalist. And, and then it just kind of snowballed, which has been amazing. Just the coolest thing that's ever happened to me, really, other, outside of, you know, getting married and having a kid. It's just like the coolest thing. I started the app and it was just, it was kind of small when we started. So I wasn't paying that much attention to it. It was awesome, but I, we were a very small staff. And, and then I started the podcast kind of on a whim with some friends from ABC News who were like, yeah, we'll produce it for you. And what we found is that there's this incredible cycle, a uh, virtuous cycle for us from a business standpoint, where content, both the books that I've written and the podcast that I produce, is the top of the funnel that draws people in and brings them down the marketing funnel to the app, which is a subscription layer. Having incredibly smart people in your ear, by which I'm not referring to me, I'm referring to my guests, great meditation teachers, researchers into various aspects of, of happiness and psychology, talking about it on an elevated level can really keep you engaged, keep you inspired. And so that, I think, is what we've lucked into as a nice service. Sure. So we just had an election, and it seems we're kind of still in the middle of the aftermath of it. Um, you had an election sanity series on 10% Happier. Can you talk about that? How did people engage with that? Yeah, so we, we're experimenting now with really closely tying what we do on the podcast to what we do on the app. During the election, we decided to do a four-part series on how to stay sane in the middle of, of all of this tumult. We should have made it an eight-part, eight-week <laughs> series because the election is still going. And what we did was every week we'd say, okay, we're, we're doing this show on you know another episode on how to stay engaged while keeping your cool. And we would mention that if you download the app in the seven days leading up to the election for free, you know, for both subscribers and anybody, we're going to run a seven-day meditation challenge with the same teachers you're hearing on the podcast teaching you how to actually do the meditation. Every day on the app, you get a little video of me talking to the teacher, and then it slides right into a guided audio meditation. There's something about the structure of it where it's every day and you can see the friends you've signed up with. You can see their progress. Mm -hmm. I think it really gives people a lot of motivation and fuel. And then the fact that we're giving you pedagogy along with it so it's not just, hey, meditate, do your best. We're giving you these little videos that explain the why and the how and the science. I, I, I think we kind of just stumbled upon a really nice formula. Sure. I guess it's the same kind of idea of, of, you know, exercising with someone else or, you know, just kind of to give you some some motivation, right? Yeah, and there is science that shows that if that kind of pleasurable accountability can be a really, really good way to make your habits stick. Yeah. So, Dan, uh, you know, what's next for you? You know, any new books or, or projects uh, or anything on the horizon? I'm writing a book, which I hate writing. Um <laughs> My number one priority really is writing this book. I've been working on it for two and a half years plus, and it probably won't come out for another two years. Um, I don't write quickly. And it's about 
I mean, one way to say this, this is going to sound really cheesy, but I'm hopefully going to take some of the stink off of it, but is love. Again, I don't mean love in the in the Hollywood sense. I mean, it literally can be anything north of neutral. Just this basic ability we have to care about ourselves and others. It's an omnidirectional force, really, because taking care of yourself makes you better with other people. So it's a it can be a virtuous cycle. So I'm going to write about my endeavors to improve in this area and really take you inside of my mind as I do this thing. And, and part of that is um, going to be incredibly embarrassing. Well, I think that love is probably a good note to end on. Um, best of luck with, with the writing, uh, Dana. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Well, great questions and uh, great to speak with you. Appreciate it. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Former Fox News anchor Gretchen Carlson has made it her life's mission to advocate for women's equity in the workplace. Since she filed a sexual harassment suit against Fox in 2016, she has fought against forced arbitration clauses that keep employment complaints and other disputes out of court. Today, she discusses with Kartika Roy, our resident gender equity expert, about her new organization and how she's fighting for legislation that will end mandatory arbitration. Well, thank you so much. I know you've been really busy and thank you for making time to be here with us. I think it's really important that people understand the really the huge impact that you have had on women's voices and binding arbitration and really understanding how we have been silenced in the workplace. So can you talk a little bit about your story and your decision to come forward, you know, obviously given what you're actually able to share given your NDA? Yes, well, well, thanks for having me. So I had been, you know, killing myself in the world of journalism for almost 30 years. At that point, I worked a lot in local news, and then I eventually made it to CBS News in New York for five years. And then I went to Fox News, and I had been there 11 years. And that was always my goal in life to get to the national scene. When I found out and figured out that they were going to take away my career from me and it wasn't my choice, something that I had worked so hard for. And I knew that the environment that I had been in was not one that was good, <laughs> that I knew if I didn't step up and say something, finally, who would? Mm -hmm. It really came down to that and the fact that they, that they fired me. Mm -hmm. I just figured at that point for my children, I wanted to take a stand. And I had no way of knowing Katika at the time that this was a pervasive epidemic, because that's part of the problem. They, they make you feel like you're all by yourself, right? Yes. So it was really like courage in a vacuum because I didn't know that there were millions of other women who were going through the very same thing. And I just literally decided to jump off the cliff. You know, I looked into my children's eyes and said, here I go. It's so incredible because what you're also risking is your career. Yeah. I mean, you know, 30 years in journalism is at risk. It's just remarkable. And it shouldn't be that way for women, by the way. It, it shouldn't. It shouldn't. But, that, but culturally, I mean, and listen, we, we could talk for hours about how to try and fix all of this. I always say it's a tangled web. It's not just a silver bullet solution, although I'm honing in on some big time solutions that I think will really help quickly. But it's, it's complicated because culturally we've been okay with shaming the woman, making it feel like it's her fault, getting rid of her right away, protecting the predator, right? And, and so when you say, yes, I was gonna throw away my career, 
that's what I'm trying to change now because all women want to do is work. That's all we want to do. We want to be paid fairly and work in a non-toxic environment. Yeah. When we tell little girls that if they work hard and do well in school, they can be anything they want to be, we are misleading them. And, and, and it's sort of this kind of thing where, where we have to hold these kind of two truths together, right? Sort of the American dream and this kind of idea that you can be anything that you want to be with that's not really true for our girls, right? And so it's like, how do we hold that together? I, it, it's such a great question because look, we all know girls outpace boys now in high school. They get better grades. Girls outpace boys in college education degrees, right? And then they do fine in entry-level jobs. And then what happens? That's when all this quagmire of crap starts happening where, you know, oh, is she going to get pregnant and have children? Oh, now we're not going to pay her the same for this particular role. Oh, we're not going to really promote her because maybe she's going to have a baby. Oh, and by the way, let's sexually harass her too. I have realized through this process of the last four years that the most important thing is to continue rising up our girls, but more importantly is to rise up our boys to respect women so that they don't fall into those traps. Until we do that, women are going to continue to be raised to be perfect, raised to knock your head against the wall until you bleed to try to achieve things, to work triply hard, right? To go for, yeah, to go for your dreams, but until boys change, yeah. none of that's going to matter. One of the things that is really critical about your story is that you actually chose to sue Roger Ailes personally. And what that did was make sure that you weren't underbiting arbitration. It wasn't under this sort of confidential in a conference room, but that actually this became public. Yeah. Well, luckily I had really smart lawyers because uh, the day that I found out I had an arbitration clause, which most people have no clue that they have these in their employment contracts. If you're listening and you have a contract, go find out if you do. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really important because it means that if you have any sort of a dispute, nobody's ever gonna know about it. And that's actually a violation of your seventh amendment, right? According to the constitution. Arbitration has completely been abused in the corporate world to keep dirty laundry silent. So my lawyers, uh, luckily there was a law in the books in New York for them to use to sue Roger Ailes, the chairman of Fox News personally. It does not exist in every state. So we got lucky with that. And in that way, it made my case public. And I'm here to tell you that had they not found that loophole, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation right now. I would have never met you. There arguably wouldn't be the Me Too movement mm -hmm. because I would have gone off into some you know, secret little chamber over here called arbitration and nobody would have ever known what happened to Gretchen Carlson. They would have just thought, oh, she had bad ratings on her show. She got canned and life would have continued at Fox, right? And everywhere else. Mm -hmm. So this is what I've been fighting for is to change the laws and make people aware of arbitration and how companies have been misusing it. You know, I would like to talk about the bill that you have on the Hill. And can you talk a little bit more about how binding arbitration actually impacts gender equity in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, it, it affects all of that. It affects because none of those none of those cases ever go public. So when women are not being paid fairly and they go to complain, it's not a public lawsuit. Basically, HR, when you come to complain about anything, whether it's pay inequity, sexual harassment, racism, whatever, they, I mean, I, I think they're nice people, but they basically wipe their brow and say, nobody's ever going to know about this. Yeah. And you never work again. The reason you don't work again is because when you try to go get future employment, you can't use your former company as a reference because they can't tell your future company why you left. Yes. Because it's secret. What is the automatic reaction of that prospective employer? Oh, she must have done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And they just cross you right off the list. And that is the sad state of affairs of the thousands of women that I've spoken to over the last four years 
who have never ever worked again. This is why this is so crucial to take it out of secrecy. Yeah. So I want to turn to Lift Our Voices, which is the organization that you co-founded with Julie Burginski and Diana Falzone, really to advocate for banning the use of both binding arbitration and NDAs. Can you talk a little bit more about the work that Lift Our Voices is doing and why its mission is so critical to achieving gender equity? Yes, thank you. So I had already been doing all my advocacy work with my Bill on the Hill for the last three to four years. And then last fall, NBC actually said that they were under fire a bit for some things that had happened there. And they actually said that they purportedly would let people who had signed NDAs get out of them. And so a group of us at Fox, Julie, Diana, and myself, we all got together immediately on the phone. And we said, well, if they're going to do that, we're going to demand that Fox let us out of our NDAs. I mean, if they say that they've cleaned up shop, then what do they have to hide? right? Yeah. So we got together, we demanded it. We still have never heard back from them, but we got a lot of press attention for asking for that. And then that organically moved into, you know, we really should form a nonprofit because nobody else is doing this out there and we're armed with all this information and we're trying to help so many people, we should make it official. And I wanted to add NDAs under the umbrella of arbitration. So Lift Our Voices was formed in December of 2019. We then went to every presidential candidate. If you recall, there were lots of them back then. And we asked them to join our mission. And all of them did, except for just a few. So the ones who did not join us were Donald Trump, Mike Bloomberg, Bernie Sanders, and Amy Klobuchar. And then we also went to the Des Moines Register and wrote an op-ed the morning of that debate in late January, the Democratic debate, and we implored the questioners to please ask a question about NDAs. Because oftentimes, if there's any question about women on the debate stage, it's about abortion. And let's face it, we are so much more interesting than just abortion. Yeah. And, and so we implored them to ask this question. And when they asked it, Katika, my kids were in the kitchen with me and they started cheering. They were like, mom, they're asking your question. And I'm like, wait a minute, be quiet. I gotta hear what happens. And then Elizabeth Warren pounced on the question to Mike Bloomberg. And, and I have to say, we're an apolitical organization because harassment is apolitical. Right. But it was a pure example of what happens when you have been hiding something for that long. And hopefully it opened up the eyes and ears of the American public to understand that in big business and little business all across America, they're keeping them silent and forcing people to sign NDAs. Mm -hmm. uh, then COVID hit, but we are still incredibly active working on Lift Our Voices to make change. And we are now going out to companies and asking them to join our team. If you want to be on the right side of history, join us now before you get forced through legislation to not have these silencing practices anymore. Well, you are so remarkable. Thank you for your courage. I really, really appreciate it. And, and thank you for all of your work. Yes. Well, and thank you for doing what you're doing. In a way, we're partners in crime. We're fighting the same fight and in good crime. I mean, yeah, that's like, right. crime to get stuff done is what yeah. I mean. You know, when I speak to somebody like you, we don't even have to really do a lot of explaining because we just get it. Yeah. And, um, and it's our mission now to make sure other people get it. So thank you for all you do as well. That's it for this week. We're changing things up a bit with our future lineup. Check out our next show on December 2nd, which is a Wednesday, not a Monday. We've decided to give you a little something to look forward to during that midweek lull. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Thanks for joining us. I'm Talib Vizran.